What's up, everyone? This is episode number 37 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And before I get going today, I just want to remind you, as always, you guys can find me on my social media throughout the week. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast. My Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. I also have a YouTube now that I use occasionally. Uh, If you want to find that, you'll just have to search Wax Museum Podcast on there. It should come up. Um, Over the last couple of weeks, I've talked about current basketball card products and different buying and selling platforms and some of the controversial stuff that's pretty rampant in the hobby right now. Well, this week I want to deviate from that and I want to try something a little bit different. And if you were to look at my bookshelf or to look through my collection and you know, even the, the video I posted not too long ago on my YouTube about my NBA Finals collection, it would be pretty obvious that I love learning about the history of the game. And it just so happens that I love talking about it too. So I want to try and look at one of the major components of today's NBA game, the three-point shot. And on today's episode, I want to examine its origins. I want to talk about how it's changed the game. And then, of course, this show is also about those little pieces of cardboard we're so fond of. So I want to talk about how I think that shot has influenced the hobby as well. Now, I'm going to touch more on this a little later, but one of the things that's so appealing about the three-point shot to me is that everyone is pretty much capable of making it, NBA player or not. Now, it might take a little bit of practice. You might have to get a little bit stronger. You might have to hit the weights. But, you know, it's not like a dunk. And I know there are ways you can train to dunk, but um, I've kind of conceded to the fact that I'll never dunk on a 10-foot goal in my life, and I'm at peace with that. But a three-pointer, though, you know, even though the little athleticism I had is quickly fading away, I can still do that. And chances are everyone that's listening to this podcast has attempted one at some point in their lifetime, um, and the distances vary. For high school courts, the arc radius is 19 feet, 9 inches. Um, for NCAA Division One, for at least on the men's court, it's a little over 22 feet. Um, and then for G League and the NBA, the radius is 23 feet, 9 inches. And uh, I'm more used to the high school court. Um, And at one point, I would say I was an okay shooter on that. Um, I have actually shot on a G League court before as part of a timeout promotion at a game. That's a story for another day. But I will say that the extra four feet is tough. You don't realize how much strength that it takes until you try that on your own. But um, it gives you a new respect for the guys that pull up from 25 or 26 feet, and they make it look effortless. And as I transition into the history of the shot, though, we have to understand pulling up from that range is is really only a recent addition to the game. Okay, well, enough with the intro. Let's jump in. Let's dig in. So uh, the game of basketball has been around, you know, some of you know this, since 1891, but the three-point shot didn't formally come to be until many years after that. And the idea had been floated around from time to time, but there wasn't a lot of experimenting with it until the 1960s. So the sport was around, you know, well over 70 years by that point. Um, The line was, however, first tested at the college level in 1945, where Columbia and Fordham tried using a 21-foot line that was worth three points, but um, apparently it wasn't impactful enough for anyone to try it for another 13 years when St. Francis and Siena tried it with a 23-point line. Uh, I'm sorry, a 23-foot line, I should say. 
Well, um, that was in 1958. Three years later, in 1961, Boston University and Dartmouth played a game where all baskets counted as three points. I don't know the reason for that. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I guess it would drive up scoring, but there's still no difference between the shots, so it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, But those two schools weren't the only people to try this whole three-point thing in 1961, and this is where we really get some traction in getting the three-point shot into the pro game. So there was a guy in 1961 named Abe Saperstein, and he's more or less regarded as the founder of the Harlem Globetrotters. I'll talk about him more on a future episode. I do. I mentioned the Globetrotters before. I think I do want to do a Globetrotters episode at some point. Um, well, anyway, Abe thought he had been promised the NBA's Los Angeles franchise, um, only to see that the Minneapolis Lakers were then selected instead to go west and take his spot. So um, he still wanted to get into the pro basketball game. So in response to that, he formed an eight-team league called the American Basketball League. Um, By the way, speaking of Saperstein, before I move on, he is in the Basketball Hall of Fame. He has a couple of cards out. Um, His face is prominently featured on a card from 1954 from a set called Quaker Sport Oddities. He's not named on it, but it's a Globetrotters card, but his, his face is you know really large on it. I consider that to be his rookie. He's also in Panini's 2009-2010 Hall of Fame set. Um, but like I said, you know I won't talk about a lot about him now, but I will talk about him more in a future episode. He's a pretty important guy in the history of the game. Um, so anyway, though, he formed this American Basketball League. He started in in 1961, and they became the first basketball league to really take this three-point line beyond a one-game experiment. Now, their three-point line had a radius of 25 feet from the baskets. Um, The sides were a little different. You're going to find that with most leagues, but um, the ABL was really the forerunner of this whole thing. They don't get a lot of credit, though, because their league only lasted a season and a half, and uh, another you know, smaller league called the Eastern Professional Basketball League tried it several years later, but neither of these leagues were all that popular. And truth be told, professional basketball still wasn't very popular as a whole. In fact, I don't even know why new leagues kept springing up because it, there really wasn't the fan support to support multiple leagues, in my opinion, um, just from what I've read. Um, so eventually... It was a league, though, that stole many of the um, EPBL's players that really popularized the three-point shot, and it wasn't the NBA at this point. Um, Instead, it was the Upstart American Basketball Association, also known as the ABA. I know I've talked a little bit about them before on this show. Um, You know, I'm really interested in the ABA. That's one of the things I really like to read about. Um, But there are a couple of articles about the history of the three-point shot that are out there online. Most of them just mention that the NBA thought it was a gimmick. The ABA clung to it. Um, Eventually, the two leagues merged in 1976, although the NBA didn't take on the three-point shot then. But they really don't talk about the nine-year span where the ABA, you know, this professional league, not only implemented the new rule, but once they got the hang of it, it completely changed the flow of the game, as most would argue, for the better. And at the same time, you know, I want to remember that this is a show about the cardboard. Um, So I want to talk about kind of where we were at also in terms of basketball cards in this time frame. Um, They were really just coming back into the mainstream. Before this, we only had three 
full-scale dedicated basketball sets. I've talked about this before, but it was 1948 Bowman. We had 1957, 58 Tops. And then we had 1961, 62 Fleer. But the popularity just wasn't there to make a basketball set a regular thing. Um, and as Adam and I discussed in episode 26, which you know seems like so long now, so long ago now, um, Tops appeared to have approached the NBA somewhere around 1968 with this sort of a test set. And this led to the regular return of, of consecutive basketball sets from the um, 69 season then to, all the way to the 1981-82 season. But um, if you started watching the NBA anytime after 1980, though, you're really just used to seeing three-pointers. It almost feels like, you know, this shot is so much a part of the game that surely it's been there since the game's inception or a little bit after. But um, the shot is, is relatively young. Um, you know, I'm sure the, the volume has increased over time, but, you know, the shot itself is pretty young. I'm about to turn 32 and the league is already a lot different than when I started watching. Um, but even as the volume increased, the shot itself wasn't a new concept entirely. Um, in the ABA's early years, it was still very much considered a novelty. The NBA had zero interest in adopting the shot. Um, and competing leagues like the ABA really only did so to try and offer something different um, to help them compete. And Sports Illustrated had an interesting article in November of 1967, which is around when the ABA um, started, from a guy named Frank DeFord. From those of you that don't know that name, he was a staple at Sports Illustrated for a while. He was also at NPR for a long time. Um, he died a couple of years ago, but I remember hearing his essays on the radio, you know, heading into work every week. And um, so anyway, he wrote this article about the ABA and about the three-point shot and he started off by talking about a player for the Anaheim Amigos named Lester Selvage. And if you've never heard that name before, you, you know, you're not alone. Okay. A lot of people haven't. It's not one that I've even read a whole lot about because quite frankly, there's not a lot about him out there. But um, Lester Selvage was a 6'1 point guard who only played 82 games in his career. And the Anaheim Amigos discovered him. He was just launching shots for a minor league team somewhere. He has zero basketball cards. Nonetheless, he played a small but important role in the history of the shot. And I want to read a small part of this piece from DeFord about Selvage before I move on. And he said in this article, Selvage says he is shooting the same as ever, that he has always taken long shots as a matter of course. It was just that before they never counted more than two points apiece. He also gets ample opportunity to employ his unique talent because a three-pointer has turned out to be a generally bad risk for most other players, except as a desperate come-from-behind measure. The Amigos, with an, with an awful early road schedule, are usually coming from behind. So th the reason why I read that was to give you um, just a picture of the early ABA days and kind of how they regarded this three-point shot as well. Um, you know, in that first year, the shot was more popular with fans than it was the actual participants. And in general, the good teams shied away from using it. Um, good teams like the Pacers, I might add. Uh, the bad teams relied on it in desperate times, but there wasn't much of a strategy to it early on. And it, it was a long shot for sure. Um, 25 feet at its longest point, Players weren't used to taking them. DeFord mentioned in that article um, that, that Oscar Robertson said it was out of his range. And, and here we are, we're talking about one of the best guards of all time. 
Um, and while it, it wasn't quite working as expected at the start, you know, the, the league hoped it would, you know, really catch on. Um, coaches were catching on to the basic strategy behind the shot. It, it wasn't just a three points being better than two points argument. But um, players were, you know, they were shooting too low of a percentage for that to have an effect. But rather, the mere threat of an outside shooter could help draw defenders to the outside and really open up the floor. Um, And these shooters didn't have to be uh, physically imposing guys. They could look like Les Selvage, who led the ABA in three-point field goals made at 147 and attempted at 461 in the inaugural season. He shot more threes that season than any other ABA team except for one. Um, He once went 10 for 26 in a single game. And you can read a little bit about him in the book Loose Balls by Terry Pluto, which I cannot recommend enough. If you want to know anything about the ABA, that's your go-to spot. Uh, It is definitely the most comprehensive history of the ABA. Um, And in this book, former Denver Rockets coach Bob Bass said of Selvage, all he could do was shoot and he shot too much. But when he was hot, he was unlike anything I had ever seen. Now, if anything, Selvage was proof that the three-point shot could help the little man. And this was very similar to the idea that the league's first commissioner, George Mikan, who oddly enough was a big man who wouldn't be shooting that shot in his career, um, it was similar to what he had pitched at the league's inception. But the NBA, though, they scoffed at this. You know, around the same time, one of their higher-ups, uh, a man named um, Eddie Gottlieb, he actually created the NBA schedule for well over a decade. Um, he went as far to say, what is it but an admission that you're dealing with inferior players who can't do anything but throw up long shots? Is length the only criterion for excellence? You encourage mediocrity when you give extra credit to this sort of thing. Now, Granted, that quote is from 1967, but the idea that three-point specialists are inferior players seems preposterous now. But at the same time, you know, our three-point shooters today can do so much more. They're, they're not a one-trick pony. And that's something that's changed even in my lifetime. There were some really good three-point shooters in the 90s, but some of them, that was you know, their sole job. And that just doesn't work in the NBA anymore. The league has shifted. But I'm getting ahead of myself here because as far as the history of the shot goes, we're still in the late 60s and early 70s. And while the NBA continued to belittle the mere notion of adopting the shot, the ABA continued to use it. And I say they continued to use it and they opened the floor, but it wasn't like they were just guns blazing. You know, we're talking maybe five to six attempts per game. This was still a new shot, but still over time, players began shooting a better percentage. Um, better was relative though. You know, who do you think was the best three point shooter in the ABA percentage wise? Well, don't even bother guessing. Even if I named him, the majority of basketball fans wouldn't even know the name. Uh, it was Kentucky Colonels guard, Daryl Carrier. And Daryl shot a scorching 37.73% from the arc for his career. And I say that with a bit of sarcasm because that wouldn't, you know, necessarily be a, a high percentage, even though it'd be you know, decent in today's standards. But as of the recording of this episode, there are 135 active and retired NBA players who have a higher career percentage. But if you look at his numbers, though, his average trended higher towards the end of his time in the league. 
Um, so if you look at you know a couple years later in 1971, he shot 43.2%. And in a backcourt that paired him with point guard Louis Dampier that shot 36.1% that year. Um, I've heard that, you know, I've heard these two referred to as the first iteration of the Splash Brothers. Um, You know, granted, it was a really small splash, but yeah, I think that's a fair comparison. You know, we hadn't seen, number one, the three-point shot really amount to anything yet, and number two, we hadn't seen a backcourt where two guys could really launch the ball. So they were, you know, a threat. Uh, P.S., both of those guys have affordable rookies in the 1971 top set. As I mentioned before, this was the first year that Tops included ABA players. Also, as far as I know, they're both still really good about signing their fan mail. So, um, you know, that might be something, if you want to add that to your collection, that might be something to look into. Um, Also, speaking of Dampier, I've seen a lot of people complain about pulling his autographs in some of the higher-end products. You know, I get it. They don't sell for anything. But... Um, the guy is a Hall of Famer with a really nice-looking autograph. He takes his time. Um, and it's not like you're getting, um, you know, Stromile Swift. But anyway, um, combined, Carrier and Dampier, they were still, even though, you know, they, they were the first version of the Splash Brothers, they were still only attempting uh, 4.43 pointers per game in 1971. But like I said, the mere threat and the ability to do so made them a dangerous combo. Um, and it spaced the floor and it worked well with a couple of Hall of Fame big men that they had on the inside, Artis Gilmore and Dan Issel. Um, you can look in the ABA at, at another guy that was considered a great shooter, Billy Keller. You know, he went from 27% in his early years to 35% over the course of his career. So the numbers moved up, but they still weren't great. Um, progress is progress, though. Okay. And there's not a lot of ABA footage on YouTube, but find any ABA game, um, compare it to an NBA game from the same year. You should notice that the pace is a little bit different. Um, The game is sped up. And I love learning about the NBA in the 70s, but watching some of the games can be rough. And it's very strange watching a game without a three-point line, you know, in retrospect. So, um, however, you know, the ABA, like I said, the numbers kept climbing. Guys were getting used to the shot. It was becoming more than an end-of-the-game thing. When the two leagues then eventually merged in 1976, you know, they called it a merger, but the NBA only took four teams in, which were um, the Pacers, the Nuggets, the Spurs, and the Nets. Um, The NBA still wasn't ready to adopt this new shot. It still felt very gimmicky to them. And, you know, we can look back and we can say, oh man, you know, the NBA was so archaic. But in the same vein, I've heard rumblings of a four-point shot in today's game, and I hate the idea. You know, would it spread the floor even more? Maybe. Would it change strategy at the end of games? For sure. Would it be exciting? Probably. But, you know, I don't think I'm ready for it. I don't want the change. Um, Anyway, though, several years later, in 1979, the NBA's Board of Governors voted to at least try the shot for one year. And I've read in a couple of places that this um, was part of countering the bad reputation that the league had developed that um, revolved around the rampant drug use. You know, eventually the um, cocaine was a, a big problem around this time, and it would continue to be into the 80s. Um, you know, supposedly this was to try and revitalize fan interest as a result of that. I don't know how true that is. Um, you know, of course, the league is never going to come out and verify that. 
Um, and even though the owners voted to give this thing a try, there was definitely still a lot of hesitation. Um, some of it came from Celtics president, Red Auerbach. He theorized that, that the reason behind creating the shot was that um, TV panicked over bad ratings. But there were still several people fighting for it that had already played with it in the ABA. Um, one such person was uh, Bobby Leonard. Actually, he played in the NBA with the Lakers, but then he coached in the ABA. He was a Hall of Fame coach with the Pacers. Um, by the way, he has a rookie card with the Lakers in 1957, uh, 58 tops. Another very affordable Hall of Famer. But um, 1979 will probably always get more attention for being Magic and Bird's rookie season. And um, But we still didn't have, you know, in 79, we still didn't have a three-point line in college. So this was a big change for some. You had some ABA guys that were still around in the NBA that were used to it. Um, but it wasn't used a lot. In the first season, teams averaged less than three attempts per game. Um, there was a player named Brian Taylor for the Clippers. He led the league the first year, only making 90 three-point shots. You know, that seems like nothing now, but um, the league gradually adopted it. You can go back and, and watch any game from the early 80s. You'll see it wasn't a huge part. Um, for the first five years, teams averaged about three attempts per game. Up until 1986, the record for threes made um, in a single season by a single player was 92. Um, Danny Ainge crushed that record with 148 in 1987. And we started to see specialists develop, like Michael Adams for the Nuggets in the, the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, team totals crept up to six or seven attempts per game. Come you know, 1994, John Starks broke the record. He broke the uh, 200 make, um, the, the 200 shot mark. And, um, you know, attempts then spiked at that point. Teams were now shooting over 15 three-pointers per game. Well, there was a reason for that. Okay, a lot of people forget about this, too, or, or they were completely unaware of this. Um, the NBA tried to address decreased scoring by shortening the distance of the line from 23 feet, 9 inches, all the way back to 22 feet. Um, this was an experiment that lasted for just three seasons. But it really did help propel the shot forward for guys like John Starks, Glenn Rice, Del Curry, um, and so on. Well, then of course, you know, I'm not going to record this and not mention Reggie Miller. Uh, Reggie Miller averaged 4.7 attempts over the course of his career. Probably around that time in 49 other states, coaches were telling kids um, not to stick their tongues out during games like MJ. Well, in Indiana, coaches were begging kids to stop shooting threes. Reggie made over 2,500 threes in his career. When he retired, I thought that record might stand. You know, I, did, I really didn't notice any trends that indicated attempts were going to ramp up all that much. Well, Ray Allen broke the record by another 400, and then I thought, surely no one will get close to him. Well, attempts kept rising. In 2009, teams were averaging a little over 18 three-pointers per game. And here we are 10 years later, teams are averaging over 33 three-point attempts per game. There was a pretty good article on The Ringer last year that showed the three largest year-over-year three-point attempt jumps in league history and not surprising it was from you know the 2015 season to 2016 2016 to 2017 2017 to 2018 so anyway it's we're all 
know, we're having huge jumps in these last three years. So what happened? Well, with the fear of oversimplifying things, the short answer is Steph Curry. A guy who's closing in on 2,500 three-pointers made and not slowing down. I know he's hurt now, but all in, all signs indicate that he's going to crush these records. Um, in Steph's rookie season, he was sixth in the league at three-point shots made with 166. And then just three years later, he broke the league record with 272. And there was a lot of early hesitation regarding Steph because of his ankles. I honestly didn't think he would last in the NBA because those injuries were piling up. And he's, you know, he's not just a set shooter. He has to be on the move constantly. It wasn't that I didn't like him. You know, he was always very exciting to watch. Uh, there was a, a different sort of appeal about him. You know, just because he could shoot so much, it wasn't about dunking. Anyway, he worked through the ankle injuries. The Warriors were up and coming. Uh, Both him and Klay Thompson were launching threes. They became the the Splash Brothers, and this time it was a big splash. You know, it it was fun to watch, but would it work? And in the past, the few teams that really tried to push the limits, they either lived uh, lived by the three or died by it, and it hadn't been a viable strategy up until this point. Well, as we now know, the Warriors did become very successful with it. They won multiple titles. And more importantly, they gave the league something it it needed to really move this play style forward. And that's proof of concept. And we've seen some offensive strategies that have sounded good in the past, but until they work, it's hard to really stick with them. And back in the 2000s, I loved... Mike D'Antoni's approach with the Phoenix Suns. Score more than the other team. Up the pace. And uh, I remember a friend and I, we debated about this constantly. And the one defense that I couldn't do anything with was, you know, he would always say, have the Suns ever won anything? And the answer was, well, they're very good, but no. The Warriors, though, gave the league this proof of concept and it tore things wide open. And that's why it's really interesting to me now that we see a familiar character in Mike D'Antoni with a Houston team built around James Harden and a slew of three-point shooters. They haven't won a title yet, but they have been very successful. For them, it's all about volume. Shoot a shot that's worth 50% more at a high volume. The numbers will work out. Not only that, but teams have realized that spreading the floor out like this also creates more room for players to cut and, and players to roll and players to drive. Um, you know, as quick as these guys move and as much space as they take up, opening up the floor is a good thing. Um, not only that, but long-range shooting is becoming an actual skill now. Attempts are going up, but so is accuracy. And it's something that people are finally training for. Um, The league was shooting under 30% from the three-point line for around the first decade that the shot was implemented. Now we're over 35% and we're shooting a lot more. And you have to think about, you know, who all is shooting threes now. It's not just your guards. You know, I don't know if you've seen the the video lately of Tristan Thompson. He's really, seems like he's going for this thing now. He wants to be a three-point shooter. Um, And this changes the players then that teams pursue. When we look at you know young players, rookies, and drafting, um, likewise, then it's changed the type of players that we collect and that have value in the hobby. You know who's one of the hottest players in the game in the hobby right now? Trey Young. Well, ten years ago, his style of play was nearly non-existent. I'm not saying he wouldn't have made it in the league, but I I don't think he would have even had the green light that enabled him to have the success that he's seen so far. 
So that segues into my last talking point for the day. You know, I've given you the history of the three-pointer. We know that the three-point shot has undeniably changed the game of basketball, and a lot of fans think for the better. But how has it influenced the basketball card hobby? I want to offer up three quick answers to this question, um, but then later on, I'd love to hear what you guys think as well. Number one, I would say, um, you know, this is kind of a different direction here, but number one, I would say that it's influenced the type of big men that people are collecting and really even investing in. There are always going to be outliers. You know, who are we all chasing this year? Well, Zion, he's, he's a big man, right? His athleticism is off the charts, but traditionally in the modern card market, big men just don't sell well, even ones that are relatively efficient. Look at DeAndre Ayton's first season. He put up respectable numbers. You know, I know he's on a bad team, but you know, no one cared, right? Retired players are a little bit different, but as far as current players go, big men not selling well, you know, is nothing new. Uh, and, and in fact, I was digging around a little bit on Blowout and I found a thread from 2013. It, it was a fun read because someone was asking if Anthony Davis had reached his ceiling. This was in 2013. Um, so even for the players that have stood the test of time, there's always been a general fear that maybe it could all come crashing down. Um, and while several big men have had good runs in the hobby, you know, Dwight Howard cards were popular for a while. Those crashed. Blake Griffin RPAs were huge. Those have dropped. Um, several things happened to those guys. You know, injuries were a big deal. That's another reason why big men don't sell well. It's just they're very injury prone which just as a side note is also why guys like Porzingis and Embiid might not be great investments. Um, But going back to Dwight and Blake, though, these guys have struggled to change with the times. Blake's shot has gotten better, but for the longest time, you know, he really couldn't shoot. He had kind of an elbow jumper. He had just bank shot. It was kind of, you know, but he wasn't shooting three-pointers. Well, Dwight obviously still can't. Uh, look at a guy like Andre Drummond right now. He's destroying the league. You know, he's on my fantasy team right now, and I'm loving it. But he missed his hobby window. And he even has the benefit of being in a couple of very, very popular sets. Um, 2012 Prism. He has the 2012 National Treasures and Immaculate RPAs. But collectors have already moved on. He doesn't have a good three-point shot. He's not on a contender. He isn't flashy like a guard. And even though his prices have gone up some, he's only going to go so high. Now, going back to Anthony Davis, though, I talked about him in the, you know, the thread about his ceiling. A guy who's in those same 2012 sets, well, his prices are soaring. And, and there are a number of reasons for that. Playing with LeBron helps. Playing in L.A. helps. But a couple of other reasons. You know, he can put the ball on the floor like a guard. He's developed a three-pointer. That's not to say he has to shoot it all the time, but it is respectable. Um, So all of that is to say a lot of the big men we collect now fall into that category of positionless basketball. They have a lot of the qualities that you'll find in a traditional guard. Um, Another way that the three-point shot has influenced the hobby, in my opinion, you know, and obviously some of these ways can and will revolve around Curry, but I think you could argue that it's helped establish national treasures as the true RPA to chase. And the key word here is helped. It's definitely not the only influencer, but if you think about it, um, Exquisite stopped in 2009, at least the the NBA licensed version did, Upper Decks still rolling out that 2003 design to milk it for all they can, but um, the NBA version stopped. 
2009 was Curry's rookie year, and that was also the first year of Panini's license and um, subsequently the, the first year of National Treasures. You would think that people might want the game-worn relics that come in flawless instead or even some of the immaculate sets that have some really nice RPAs, but people are still chasing really hard after National Treasures. I think people just really, really like brand continuity. And while Blake helped launch the 2009 set, it's guards like Harden and Curry that have pushed it to new heights. Three-point shooters. And then finally, a third way that the three-point shot has influenced the hobby revolves around players that we speculate about. NBA GMs now, it seems like they're always looking for the next Steph Curry. It's why Sacramento gave up so much for Buddy Heald and then paid him so much. You know, they actually said that they thought he could be the next Curry. Atlanta, you know, that's why they were more than happy to swap Luka for Trey. And at this point, I think Luka is a better overall player. I'm already hearing people say he could win multiple MVPs. Um, But Trey had that Steph range. And like I said earlier, now that we've had proof of concept, teams are looking to replicate that. So then not surprisingly, collectors and investors are as well. It's a little bit of copycat syndrome, because there are a lot of nice curry cards that people are priced out of already. It's hard to tell how much higher his stuff will go or where it will settle over time, but a guy like Trey, on the other hand, although his prices are rising and some of his cards are very high already, you can still jump in and grab some Prism rookies for $15 or $20 a piece. Ten years ago, people would have looked at a player like Trey and just casually dismissed him. There were a lot of doubts about Steph 10 years ago. Who are we buying instead? You know, you know, Blake was popular, but we were also busy buying scorers like Brandon Jennings and Tyreek Evans. Well, whatever Tyreek Evans scored in 2019 barred him from the league for the next two seasons. All right, so there you have it. Um, I wanted to try and incorporate a little bit of history into today's episode We're so used to the three-point shot now, but it really has revolutionized the game. I hope you learned something. I hope you enjoyed it. My goal was to try and share that history and incorporate cards into that somehow. Um, Now, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how the changes in the game have in turn changed the hobby as well. Maybe there are some big points that I completely overlooked. Let me know on my Instagram, which is at WaxMuseumPodcast, or my Twitter, which is at WaxMuseumPC. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or Google Play. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store, tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast.